before all of that, we're going to have a guy, a guy that I've wanted to talk to for some time. I've followed his work, Stefan Molyneux. He is a uh, libertarian philosopher, writer, uh, blogger. He has, uh, maybe you've uh, seen his YouTube channel. It is literally one of the uh, most popular channels out there. He, uh, wh- What I like about him, and it's funny because this is kind of what I got involved in over the weekend, was talking to some people on Facebook, that one of the challenges for libertarians that I find is that libertarians tend to be exceptionally logical thinkers, but that can also uh, be a double-edged sword because, you know, what that means is it tends to uh, attract people that are mathematicians, computer programmers, uh, what you might call nerds, um, and not all of them, but a great many of them. And so sometimes communicating persuasively is not or winning people over to a popular cause is not one of the strengths. Clear logical thinking, sure, but persuasion, maybe not so much. And that is what I really like about Stefan Molyneux. Uh, you can check out his website, freedomainradio.com. Uh, I think that's it. I'll have to double check. Uh, but he is, he's really a sharp thinker. You know, I don't agree with any, anybody 100%, but, uh, he's really a sharp thinker. And raises great arguments and, and somewhat controversial at times, but he's able to communicate in such an effective manner. I mean, he really, he speaks well, uh, but he's not kind of hoity-toity or, or ivory tower uh, in his approach. He's just a really interesting guy. I'm really looking forward to having him on uh, on the show here shortly. Oh well, without further ado, looks like we've got Mr. Molyneux on the line. Let's uh let's bring him on. Uh welcome, Stefan Molyneux, to the show. How are you? I'm just great. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, so uh I've always I, I've been very impressed by uh your work because you know, I'm a longtime libertarian and one of the causes that I've taken on is the cause of effective rhetoric. Meaning, how to, how to be persuasive, because I'm sure you're fully aware the people who are attracted to libertarianism in, as an idea, as a philosophy, tend to be more logical thinkers. But unfortunately, those are the same guys that were playing Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, on Usenet back in the late 80s or, or early 90s. They don't have social skills. And that is an important thing. I mean, I listen to some of the stuff that you have, like at uh, Free Domain Radio, and they're very effective as a communicator with these ideas. I mean, you take some of the, even what I think are, 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 are unusual or more crazy ideas uh, within the uh, libertarian political philosophy, and you make them sound completely reasonable. So, Well, sorry, just, just to point out, in, the, in, in defense of the Dungeons & Dragons players, they do have social skills, just not in this world. I mean, if we get transported to Middle Earth, we, you know, we're set. If we need to talk to elves or Klingons, they outshine Obama in speaking skills. So again, just want to put that in context. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like if you're, if you're at a Star Trek convention, you might be okay. 
Uh, or, or if you want to drive women away from you, uh, then you know these are the people you want to surround yourself. Yeah, with. which is scary, no, right? Because like it's, maybe it's some sort of like uh, unfortunate. We need to be able to grab the reins of natural selection and make more libertarians instead of using it as some sort of uh, prophylactic. Oh, if we can make uh, if we can make libertarian geekiness uh, sexy, we'll rule the world in a generation because we're going to breed like rabbits. <laughs> so, so what I what I love about your your site and again it's is it it's freedomainradio.com, dot uh, com correct? Yeah, freedomainradio.com. Okay, and I mean you've got some pretty impressive statistics. I mean you're like your your YouTube channel is just off the charts, right? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly not compared to, say, eight seconds of a Lady Gaga video, but for a philosophy show, I mean, it's got, I think, a little over eight million views on YouTube. I've had over 30 million podcasts and book downloads. So, I mean, you know, the Khan Academy is 80 million and we're almost 40 million. So we're we're catching up to those informative uh, uh, tramps. So, yeah, it's it's definitely the biggest and most successful philosophy show in the world. I credit mostly the technology with that. We just had an unparalleled marketplace with which to share ideas and the fact that everything is free has not uh, has only helped that i think yeah and what i like too is that uh i mean you do think deeply you've got a uh, i think it, it, your master's is it in philosophy or history or both it's in history but uh, my thesis was uh, a pretty core uh, argument for the history of philosophy so uh, that was really my discipline there okay yeah i i really like that you you Think deeply about these things, but you're also, you're not ivory tower. I mean, really, your whole operation is basically run, it's, it's like an intellectual market. It is, and I was very struck by um, an argument that I heard many years ago, which said that uh, basically Socrates never used the word deontological. You know, that, that all of the, 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 he never even used the word metaphysics. Uh, Socrates spoke in plain, forceful, clear, compelling the language of his day. And I really have, have disliked for many years the, the devolution into hypersyllabic specialization where you just seem to invent words to confuse the masses and get a heady paycheck. And so I've really tried to communicate in clear, plain, direct English because philosophy is supposed to be how you can live, how you can do good, how you can stand up to evil, how you can achieve virtue. And if it requires a lot of education in obscure words to do that, it can't ever be a popular discipline. But we need for the future to be peaceful and, and happy. We need philosophy to be the most popular discipline, which is why I will stop at nothing to attempt to get people interested in philosophy, I've sung songs, I've dressed up, I've used props. Uh, I mean, I'll do anything to, to engage people in the art of, of logic and evidence, because that is the most important thing. And you can't hide behind too many big, stupid words to and then say, let's make the world a better place. Yeah. And, you know, what what I think is missing is that, um, you know, sure, there is a bit of a jargon to uh, to uh, philosophy and to some technical uh, fields. But then you also run on the other side people who only operate from ad hominem arguments or, uh, you know, from informal fallacies. So there's, there's this fine line that you're able to, to, to balance. Um, we're bumping up on our, on our first break here. Sorry, that is one of the, uh, limitations of not doing this over the internet. We've got to keep the lights on here at the station. So, um, I'm thrilled to have you here. We've got Stefan Molyneux from, uh, freedomainradio.com. Come on back after the break. Uh, I'd, I'd love, uh, are you okay taking callers? Love to take callers. Okay, great. We'll come on back speaking with Stefan Molyneux on Mental Self Defense Radio. K Talk, the voice of Utah. All right, welcome back, Mental Self-Defense Radio. I am your host, Jake Shannon. Uh, we are speaking with Stefan Molyneux. He uh, is kind of 
he's uh I don't know. I really don't know how to describe you. Are you a freelance <laughs> philosopher? I mean, what would you call yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I run a philosophy show. I um, yell at people on the internet for money, and uh, I survive entirely on donations. It's a weird job description. Uh, my daughter is almost three, and occasionally she asks me what I do, and I tell, try to tell her, and she gives me this look like, oh, come on, that's not a real job, and I really can't help but agree with her, so that's the best way I can describe it. Now, let me ask you something, and this is just for the uh, – we talked about libertarian nerds before the break, uh, and the libertarian nerd in me, I'm curious, are you related to Auburn Herbert at all, by chance? Not that I know of. Okay, because he has his name – actually, his name's Auburn Herbert, but the, he's got a very long name, and one of the names in there is Molyneux, and he was also a very famous individualist uh, anarchist, so I thought maybe there's some sort of genetic propensity for this thing or something. Yeah, I mean, I do have a sort of family background in philosophy that goes back to John Locke and earlier, but um, uh, it's it's been laying dormant for a few generations. Okay, now one of the one of the um, videos <clears throat> that I saw of yours uh, where you were speaking that I thought was just brilliant. You were talking about. I think a lot of people don't understand anarchism. You know, I mean, it's just such a loaded term with the little guy in the black hat with the bomb popping to mind. But you, you really made a great point. I think you compared it kind of to how um, uh, the Coper- you know, Galileo and Copernicus said that the sun was the center of the solar system, and nobody thought that was real, and that was just a joke, and they were kooky. And you compared that to this idea of a completely voluntary society, that those people who were kind of the early adopters or whatever you want to call it, this voluntarism or, or, you know, where you don't need government at all, but you could still have total peace, you know, peace and order. Nonetheless, you, you compared that. I thought that was brilliant. But for people who aren't, uh, necessarily comfortable with the idea, what, what is your most persuasive argument for, for the philosophy of anarchism? Well, it's that we should do right in the world. We should do good in the world. And good means two things, fundamentally. It means, and everybody's going to agree with me on this, I'm sure. Uh, First of all, it means that we should not use violence to get what we want. You know, maybe we can use violence if someone's running at us with a chainsaw or whatever, but that's not exactly a daily occurrence. At least I hope it's not. But we should not use violence. We should not initiate the use of force to get our way in the world. And we all accept that. We all understand that. And the second thing is that, and it's sort of the same, it's stating it the same way, is we should respect property rights. So we should not punch people and we should not steal stuff. I mean, that's basic kindergarten morality. I mean, we we should all be able to handle that by the time we're three or four years old. Now, if you take those two moral basics, don't hit, don't steal, and you extend it to a universal moral principle, which really is the only sustainable way to have any kind of moral principle, unfortunately, a lot of things change. (laughs) Because right now, we have at the center of our society this thing called the government. A government is a monopoly on the initiation of force, right? It's a monopoly on the initiation of force. Uh, uh, Taxes, regulation, debt, the counterfeiting that is carried out by the government in conjunction with the Federal Reserve, this is all the initiation of force. This is all people having the legal right, duty, and obligation to go stick guns in other people's faces and make them do what they want. Now, this is how society has always been organized, and it's really a bad way to organize society, as we can see from the current economic and social disasters throughout the world. But what if, what if, instead of just having a society that we inherited, 
that just kind of makes sense because it's the way it's always been done, which is exactly how slavery was for countless thousands of years. What if we said, okay, let's try and think about how society should work on a moral level rather than just whatever crap we happen to have inherited from, from history? Well, obviously, we, we should have respect for property rights and we should have a nonviolent society. When you put those two principles right at the center of society, rather than this violent monopoly we happen to have inherited from the Stone Age, then society looks very different. Society looks very different because you cannot logically justify or morally justify the existence of a violent monopoly if you're against violence. And you can't ensure the peace of society by giving a group of men and women the legal right and obligation to initiate force against whoever they want fundamentally. They write the rules. And to counterfeit money at will to run all of these violent rules throughout a very delicate and sensitive market economy, it just is going to wreck everything. And that's what we're currently in the process of. So anarchy is just how you live your life. You want listeners, you try to provide a quality show. Hopefully I'm part of that, at least today. You try to provide a quality show. And you don't force people to listen to you. You don't kidnap them and lock them in a basement and then pipe your show to them. You do it all voluntarily. If you get married, you don't kidnap your wife and lock her in the trunk and drive her to the church. Uh, you do things voluntarily. You don't lock your friends. It's your, you don't chain your friends to your dinner party if you want to eat and, and talk with them. You do this all voluntary. So the way that you and I live, the way that everyone we know lives, this is just the way we all should live. And that, unfortunately, means that government cannot be sustained. Now, now, let me ask you a question. I think we might have to have you uh, switch to a landline because it's kind of dropping every uh, couple uh, minutes here. But uh, before we bother with that, we, we can do that at the next commercial break here in about uh, five or six minutes. I'm, I am curious, though, about, you know, how – I'm very sympathetic to these ideas, but of course it always comes down to, you know, the operations of it and – I'm, I'm curious how you deal with, you know, they, they always say in any one particular population sample, something like two to four percent are psychopaths, meaning they have no empathy. They have no remorse. Uh, you know, they've done tons of studies to show that um, politics tends to attract the same personality as uh, serial killers, that uh, mo- a lot, a, a large number of CEOs, like up, upwards of 25% of CEOs, could be characterized as, as psychopaths or sociopaths. How do we deal with those people? I mean, is it then we have to wait for them to aggress first, and then somehow we collectively uh, make the case to our friends, and then we all go and, you know, kind of like uh, go after Frankenstein with the, with the mob, with the pitchforks and, and torches? Well, look, if, if you have somebody who's 400 pounds and you really want them to lose weight, what you shouldn't do is surround them with massive buffets of, of cheesecakes and eclairs and chocolate and puddings and chips and cookies and all of that kind of good stuff because they're just going to gorge themselves because obviously they've got a problem controlling their, their eating. And so surrounding them with rich, fatty, delicious, sugary, oh, my mouth's watering now, all of this kind of good food is not going to help them. And so if we have people who have a tendency towards aggression and control and they lack empathy, the last thing we should do is have a big government with all the power in the world that they can worm their way into and use that institution to dominate and control the rest of us. Government is like a big buffet of cheesecake in front of somebody who's got a sugar addiction or a sweets addiction. We have to take that buffet away. And, and the, the worst evil is when you get immoral people in control of a nearly all-powerful institution. Take away that all-powerful institution and you take away a fundamental 
way that evil people gain control over us. It's not the full solution, but at least it's a first step. Yeah, that that seems reasonable. Now, you know, one one of the other things that's always kind of <clears throat> uh, been a hard time for me to wrap my head around. I, I consider myself in the jargon, I guess, a, a minarchist. I believe in a, that you have to have a minimal gar- uh, government. I mean, I'm fully familiar with arguments from, you know, Rothbard to, to David Friedman to, to all kinds of different people about, you know, uh, anarcho-capitalism. But, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, competing governments and things like that or security firms and things like that. But, um, I mean, doesn't that je- then just alleviate the state from being landlocked or geo, uh, geo, uh, geographic? Doesn't it then – you still have competing states, really, competing uh, forces for force? Mm. Right. Well, I mean, let, let's say that we, we have a, a free society or a peaceful society without a government, and it's surrounded by governments that may want to do harm. Well, you and I are both going to sit down and say, well, you know, we need some kind of collective defense. And so about 10 billion entrepreneurs are going to come out of the woodwork, and they're going to try and provide us secure defense. Now, the first question we're going to ask them is, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, just a, just a doggone minute here. If I give you a couple of hundred bucks a year to defend me from these other governments, how do I know that you're not going to just become my new government, just going to take things over and, and all that kind of stuff? So the first question that entrepreneurs are going to need to answer is, how do you not protect people from others, but protect people from yourself as this sort of defense agency? And there's, there's tons of ways that you can do that. Uh, I was an entrepreneur for many years, so I have that kind of problem-solving side of my brain is fairly well honed. I mean, if I were trying to sell this kind of service, I'd say, okay, well, uh, I'm going to account to you for every kind of weapon that I have, and um, I'm going to make sure that I don't have any excess weapons. I'm only going to need as many weapons as I need to defend the country, and that's mostly going to be some sort of nuclear device because nuclear powers never get invaded. Uh, so I just want deterrence. I don't want the, the, the massive army to go invade some other country. I just want enough weapons to deter some other country from invading me. And so, uh, I, you know, he, I'm going to put $10 million into a bank and anyone who finds that I have a single extra bullet, I give that $10 million to. And uh, all of these kinds of things, that's sort of one answer. The other answer, very briefly, is that there's really not much point invading a free society because when you invade a country and take it over, what you're fundamentally taking over is the tax apparatus. Right. So when Germany invaded uh, France in May of 1940, what it immediately did was it took over the tax apparatus and therefore began collecting all of the taxes which it used to fund its war machine. But in a free society, there is no tax apparatus to take over. The government is not a central place where everyone sends their money, which could be taken over by a, um, some, other con- uh, some other country or some other government. So if you go and invade a country that has no government, what do you get? Well, you get a whole bunch of people who are kind of armed because, you know, there's no probably very few restrictions uh, on arms and you have no tax structure to take over. So it's really not very profitable. So they're going to, you know, c- governments will fight amongst each other, but it seems very unlikely they would ever bother invading uh, a society where they can't take over taxes. Yeah, and I, for me, I'm of the school of Henry David Thoreau, that it seems like there's so many people hacking at these other arbitrary uh, uh, branches of tyranny when, you know, there's only, for every, what do you say, every hundred or thousand that are striking at the branches, there's only one striking at the root, and that is taxation. But, you know, the funny thing is, is, is when I'm debating with people who um, are social democrats social liberals not classical liberals um you know what i notice is a mindset where in their brain they think that like 
tax avoidance or not paying taxes or doing a tax protest is theft. Whereas the classical liberals or the libertarians think that taxation is theft or slavery. Do you know what I mean? I mean, have you been able to broach that or, or convince people perhaps that are more bent towards socialism? Uh, yeah. What, what is yeah, it? I, what, I, what do you I, find sorry. persuasive? I, I know the argument. The argument goes something like this. Well, you have a social contract with your government. Your government educated you. Uh, your government pays for the roads. It, it, uh, it pays for the police. It pays for the, the national defense. And you've received all of these goods and, and, and they've helped you and they've, they've you know, done all these kinds. Of, so you have a bill that you have to pay to society, which has showered all of these great benefits on you. And if you refuse to pay that bill, then uh, it, is, uh, it is theft. Because government's given you all these great things, and now it has to charge you for them, so you're not paying. It's like ordering a couch, and then you don't pay it. Well, you've just stolen the couch, right? Is that the sort of argument that you get, more or less? Yeah, that, that seems like where they kind of go if you really push them, um, that they want to say, yeah, and that, that's interesting, because I hadn't really thought of it as a social contract argument. Yeah, and, and I mean, just, well, okay, show me the contract. You know, show, show me the contract where I signed at the age of zero... <laughs> You know, I remember being held up and maybe my butt got slapped upside down, but I don't remember signing any contract. And the fact that you give things to me does not obligate me to pay. In fact, if they're a gift, you don't pay. It's like me saying, well, I gave this woman uh, two dozen roses and now she has to go on a date with me. Well, no, she doesn't because she didn't choose for me to give her those roses. It's not a voluntary contract. There's no, there is no social contract. It's just a myth that there is no social contract. And so uh, I just ask for the definition. Uh, who is using force? Was I using force to be born into this society? No, I was just born. Is the government threatening me with force if I don't pay my bills? Well, of course it is. I mean, the, the, anybody who denies that is so far outside of reality that you, you, you can't catch them with a, you know, a foghorn and a, and a, a naval flare. So uh, you just have to just go to the definitions of, okay, what is force? Well, force is the initiation of violence against someone. Me living peacefully in my house is not initiating violence. Getting a tax bill for property rights is the initiation of violence. It doesn't matter what happens to the money after that. It doesn't matter if the mafia that's shaking me down for $1,000 a month gives $900 of that to charity. That doesn't matter. What matters is theft. It doesn't matter what happens afterwards. It doesn't matter if you think it helps people or it doesn't help people. There's no defense in, in law against the charge of theft called, I gave a good chunk of it to charity. Uh, it just doesn't, so, you know, it's just a universal rule. That's, that's what we have to focus on. Now, now one of the things that I, uh, want, another talk or, or argument that you've made that I really enjoyed, and my wife did as well, it kind of jarred my head when you were talking about, you remember being, you know, slapped when you were a baby, but you're actually, uh, this is kind of maybe an awkward segue, but you're actually against uh, spanking as well, right? Well, I mean, that may be a bit, uh, a bit personal, like it's a, a flavor of ice cream that I don't happen to like. Um, spanking is the initiation of force. Again, we have to make this, it's either a universal rule or it's just an opinion. Now, a philosopher has no business dealing with opinions. Uh, we, we try to deal with logic and reason and that which is universal. Uh, spanking is, is the initiation of, of force against children. And, uh, you know, you, you talked earlier about the psychopaths, the sociopaths. Uh, the science seems pretty clear that uh, uh, you know, criminals are largely bred through child abuse, that drug addicts are largely bred through child abuse and so on. So if we want to focus on having a more peaceful society, then we need to focus on raising our children without aggression. Uh, then they simply will not bow to authority in the way, in the way that we would like as a society as a whole. 
uh, if child abuse, you know, if we could sort of snap our fingers and eliminate child abuse. And I know spanking versus child abuse is a complex discussion. If listeners want to call in and talk about it, I, I think that would be great. But if we could eliminate aggression against children, there would be almost no criminality. There would be almost no promiscuity. There'd be almost no out-of-wedlock babies. There would be almost no smoking. There'd be almost no drug uh, addictions. There'd be almost no criminality. And so in a sense, we kind of wouldn't need a government because we create a government or we believe a government is necessary to deal with all of these social ills. But we have a great deal of control over minimizing them. Fascinating stuff. Uh, stick with us. I, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Maybe also your opinion on circumcision with regards to children. Come on back, guys. Mental Self-Defense Radio here on K-Talk. Speaking with Stefan Molyneux from FreeDomainRadio.com. All right. Welcome back. Mental Self-Defense Radio. I am your host, Jake Shannon. Uh, fascinating conversation we're having with, uh, Stefan Molyneux. He is quite an interesting guy. He is a philosopher. He, uh, has a very popular website, uh, slash YouTube. I mean, he really is a great communicator. Uh, check him out over at freedomainradio.com. But we've kind of meandered a bit all over the place, but I think we're kind of zeroing in on some, some moral principles, some moral philosophy, some ideas, um, and before the break, we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, the effects of spanking, of the initiation of force, even upon kids, uh, which kind of led me naturally to, you know, uh, are, are you still with us, Stefan? I sure am. Okay, great. Uh, so um, we were talking about, you know, abusing children, basically, initiation of force against children. Um, where do you stand on circumcision? I'm assuming that you're against it. Yeah. Um, I mean... You, you can't hack off bits of your baby. I mean, that, that just seems, I mean, it's, it's weird that, that, that should even be something that needs to be said in the 21st century. But yeah, I mean, it's, you, you can't make that choice for the baby and say, oh, well, maybe there's a few health benefits here and there, which are highly disputed. But even if there were, that doesn't mean that I get to put my daughter through appendix, like through an appendicitis operation or an appendectomy just because she might get appendicitis at some point in the future. That would be considered me- me- medically horrible. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah, no question of that. I mean, that that's just something that is astonishing to continue to have to debate. But because it's in the realm of religion, it falls into a different category. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be one of the bastions, uh, you know, one of the big barriers that a lot of people hide behind this whole idea. Well, oh, it's my faith, you know, you can't mess with it or whatever. But um, you know, I mean, it seems a little ridiculous. And you you come from uh, you you argue for atheism, right? Uh, yes. Well, I mean. Everybody does. I mean, that's that's the funny thing about it is that everybody, you know, there are about ten thousand gods in the world that people believe in, and most people believe in only one. So they're atheists about almost all gods in the world. Uh, this, uh, I, I just, I just go one god further than than most people uh, because most people disbelieve in everyone else's gods and just believe in one uh, of their own. And uh, I think that the most consistent position is if nine hundred ninety nine or nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine gods are not uh, not around and and not to be believed in, then it's hard to create an exception logically for that that one that the people happen to like and and I was raised as Christian so I mean I understand that it's a difficult thing to to overcome but um, I think that's where the logic leads yeah it sort of seems like people subscribe to kind of uh, that they pick their religions for the same reason that they they tend to pick their favorite sports teams it has to do with who you know what what your parents were fans of and the people in the area in which you live uh, were fans of. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think people really pick their religions. I think that they just happen to be born into them. Uh, I mean, it would be a pretty good argument for 
any particular religion if someone was born into some other place and had no exposure to it, but ended up believing those tenets anyway. That would be pretty cool. But, you know, religion is a meme or an idea that tends to replicate itself intergenerationally. And people can say, okay, well, it's my religion, but, you know, I think that the the responsible thing to do as adults uh, and as parents is to say, well, I have these beliefs, but I don't want to teach my child conclusions. I don't want to teach my child what to think or what to believe. I want to teach my child how to think. And so that my child can come to his or her own conclusions. And unfortunately, religion and, and statism and patriotism and all of, they're teaching conclusions. Uh, and that's not, I think, fair to kids whose uh, intellectual abilities should be, uh, should be really encouraged. And unfortunately for a lot of people, when you encourage your child's curiosity and rationality, your child may come to conclusions that are uncomfortable to you. And a lot of people, I think, choose to avoid that, which I think is not the right thing to do as parents. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. So my my question for you, um, obviously, you know, you have a skill with persuading people. What I mean, who are some of your bigger influences? I mean, not only as maybe libertarians or classical liberals or mm. philosophers, but, you know, also with regards to, to your communication style. Well, I, I mean, I was a, I was a kind of like the Barry White of, of uh, liberty. You know, you've got like this real smooth <laughs> delivery. And, and, and I put the white in Barry White. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, uh, I've been a big fan of, I mean, I, I really started with the ancients, with the classical philosophers, and uh, their, their conversational style, I think, was really important. They, they were accessible to, to everyone. You know, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, uh, Diogenes, all of these guys would speak with anyone in the language of the marketplace, in the common tongue, so to speak. And that was a big influence on me. Uh, I did a lot of debating and, and public speaking when I was in college, and that was enjoyable to me. I also, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of stand-up comedy, and uh, so I, because I think that you can get people to accept a lot of unpalatable truths if you can wrap them in some good humor and some positivity. I mean, some of the stuff that George Carlin did was pretty shocking. Uh, when it came to his analysis of, of power structures and so on, and I've been sort of enormously influenced by the spoonful of sugar <laughs> makes the medicine go down kind of thing. So I found that to be very important. Uh, philosophically, I mean, uh, Ayn Rand was a big a big influence on me. Uh, and uh, as you say, I later got into Murray Rothbard and other people like that. But um, uh, I've really, really striven to make it as enjoyable uh, a way to learn about the truth as possible. But let me ask you this, because <clears throat> this is what I find. I've been libertarian for a very, very long time. I'm very passionate about it. And it's one of those double-edged swords. I've never seen it as popular as it is now. Largely, I think, because of the efforts of Ron Paul. I, you know, I'm pretty sure he's not going to be president, but he's been using this political process as a didactic or educational process. To, I mean, like nobody's ever done before that I've seen. Now, the thing that's frustrating is I look at how Ron Paul delivers his message, which is so appealing and wins so many converts. He's just polite. But then what, end, what I've noticed happens with these people who in the last maybe three, four, five years have come to Liberty, maybe from listening to Ron Paul, then they do go read Ayn Rand and Rothbard, and they throw all that all the window, out the window. They're combative, they're abrasive, they call people sniveling cowards, and, you know, it's like it totally is antithetical to the aims of, of Liberty, and that is largely persuasion, getting people to come to your side without the aid of a gun. Well, I agree with you. Then there are, you know, it's sort of the Harry Brown slash Ayn Rand dichotomy. The Harry Brown, of course, was uh, was also a big influence on me, and he was the ultimate libertarian gentleman, uh, of course, right? And um, uh, so there is that dichotomy. I think that there's a place for both, uh, and I think that, uh, I mean, one of the things that I've been 
influenced by was I had a college roommate who was studying biology and he explained to me a strategy that was pretty popular in biological circles, which is be as nice as you can the first time that you meet someone and after that treat them as they treat you. And I think that's a pretty winning strategy in life as a whole. And so um, I think that it's really, really important to be nice and positive and friendly and enthusiastic and so on. But uh, and if people then set themselves up as aggressive enemies towards you, uh, it, it, you know, I think it's okay to be nice and it's also un uh, okay to take the gloves off sometimes. Uh, I think that knowing when to do what, uh, when to do which is, is a real challenge. I'm not saying I always get it right. But I think we can't just nice our way into the new world because the new world, the world of peace and voluntarism and all that that we want to create is going to harm the interest of many millions of people around the world. I mean, just think of, I mean, if Ron Paul gets in and, and gets to do what he wants to do, there will be millions of government workers thrown out of, out of work. And those people are going to fight to retain their benefits. I mean, look what happened to Scott Brown uh, in Wisconsin, to Governor Brown in Wisconsin. I mean, he just tried to limit some of the pension uh, giveaways to public sector unions. And I mean, everybody went, you know, ape crap on him. I mean, you've got Democratic people, the senators leaving the entire province and you've got recall elections and strikes and, and you know, riots and so on. And so there, there is going to be a time when we're going to have to face people who are going to declare us as enemies and who we're going to have to declare as enemies. I think that to imagine that we can smile our way uh, into a better world at the expense of millions of people's immediate self-interest is not valid. There is going to be a battle. Uh, I just hope that positivity can win us enough uh, people to our side that the battle will be relatively quick. <laughs> I hope that makes some sense. That's totally uh, common sense, and, and I, I agree. The other thing that I've noticed then is that there's also this kind of um, uh, ego, egoism, and I don't mean it in the philosophical sense. I mean it in the sense of kind of a pomposity or whatever, where uh, I noticed the same thing when I was a teenager and I was into punk rock music, and there was always this, I'm more punk rock than you. Well, I've noticed that sort of within within libertarianism, that, for example, the, the Beltway libertarians versus like the Mises, uh, non, uh, Coke, the Coketipus, um, uh, libertarians or, or, you know, maybe a geo-libertarian against a, but there, why is there so much animosity? We're all libertarians. We largely agree on the same things. It's maybe some implementation. I mean, what, what are some of the ways maybe that people could get beyond that to work together despite some operational, uh, or strategic differences? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that Freud called the narcissism of small differences. Uh, and it is interesting to see that libertarians will often fight libertarians more than they will fight, say, a Marxist or a socialist. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with um, with strategy, right? So, I mean, there are the people who believe that education is the key. And then there are people who believe that, that politics uh, is, is the key. And there are other people like myself who argue that uh, bringing nonviolence to your personal relationships, particularly with your kids, is the key. And because there's such a small amount of money and resources in the libertarian movement, it's sort of like a zero-sum game. So if more money pours into politics, it's stampeding away from education, and those people want to lasso that money and bring it back to them and, and, and so on. And so I think that there is a certain tension with, with regards to uh, strategy. And to me, though, the, the, the simple answer to all of this is just, well, let's go back to reason and evidence. Let's look at what actually works when it comes to developing uh, a peaceful uh, and and voluntary future, and uh, politics has not been shown to work. Statistically, it just has not worked. Politics has been tried for about 150 years. If you count the American Revolution, it's been tried for over 300 years, and the American Revolution did succeed in creating a very small government, which then 
morphed and grew into the very largest and best armed and hyper-controlling government the world has ever seen. So, uh, so that experiment has sort of empirically proven not to work. This is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I think politics is not the answer. But, um, and is education the answer? No, I don't think education alone is going to do it because there are lots of very well-educated libertarians who are, you know, state-protected and controlled uh, uh, um, uh, academics or, or they work in, uh, in Washington, they try and work within government and they, they're not giving up their sort of status privileges even though they're very well-educated. So I don't think education, if education works, then everyone who bought a diet book would, would lose weight. Education just doesn't work. There's something that's missing. And I think what's missing is, is the personal, is the way that we uh, act in our personal relationships, in our personal lives, that we do not accept aggression and violence in our personal lives, that we do not enact aggression and violence in our personal lives. We grow this thing from the ground up. I don't think we're going to get it drop, dropping down from the clouds of politics or academia or education. Now, now you mentioned books. Uh, what are you working on now? Obviously, you're you're pretty tireless with regards to doing your own broadcasts and kind of being your uh, like your own market in of yourself. I mean, you're really um, you're quite uh, productive. It's quite amazing. But what are you working on? I know over at freedomainradio.com, uh, you've got books, uh, you've got like internet forums, and then you've obviously got your podcasts and your YouTube channels. Where, where are you focusing, and what are you looking forward to in the future here? Well, I'm taking a break for, I just did a lot of traveling and speaking, uh, this last fall. I was in New York for Liberty Fest 2. I spoke with, uh, Adam Kokesh and, uh, the great Tom Woods. And, um, then I was, uh, in, in at Libertopia. I did the opening and closing speeches. I did a debate with the great Ernie Hancock. And I was also the MC. And then I was on a Liberty cruise, uh, with Mark Edge from Free Talk Live and Wes Bertrand of, of Complete Liberty. And so now I'm going to take a little bit of a break until early next year from, from that sort of travel. Uh, and speaking, and uh, I mean, just you know, if you're at all interested, like right now, I'm working on. I posted something the other day uh, saying that there's no such thing as mental illness, and got a lot of uh, questions and criticisms of that. So I'm just working on a presentation uh, to help people understand that uh, you know, this psychiatry thing is largely made up, and there's no biological basis, and the drugs are all destructive, and so on. So that's something that I'm uh, I'm working on because you know, if we want to build a free society, it would be great to do it. Um, on the shoulders of kids who hadn't had their brain mass shrunk by 10% from these terrible um, pseudo-cure drugs. So, I mean, it's the kind of stuff that I'm working on. And they tend to be sort of driven by what the listeners are most interested in in uh, consuming at the time. Well, I love to hear that. Uh, Thomas Saws is probably my biggest influence personally as a libertarian. So anybody taking up the mantle of... Uh, the therapeutic state, as Saws would call it, is is uh, definitely a good guy. I've been lucky enough to actually have Doctor Saws on the show. Um, he, he's a fascinating guy, and that is that is really, I think, cutting edge with regards to liberty. No, few people realize that that a psychiatrist uh, can totally take away your right to trial. You, he can throw you right into prison, uh, and it's largely what they used in uh, they use in China now to deal with dissidents. They call you a, a paranoid schizophrenic. If you don't think the state is the answer to everything and they just throw you in a psychiatric ward and yeah, these chemical lobotomies are absolutely criminal. Oh, and the, I mean, the expansion of it, it's just astounding. I mean, and the, the fact that it's, uh, it's state driven, it's state driven almost entirely. There's nothing in the free market that would draw this kind of spending towards, uh, these pseudo drugs, which have been proven to be no better than sugar pills, uh, but it's all driven by government regulations and funding and all oh, and that. We're coming up against a break. Can you hang with us for another 10, 15 minutes? Totally, man. Okay, great. Come on back. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom, uh, freedomainradio.com. Come on back, guys. And here we lost a little bit of audio, 
but the very kind and generous host asked me about my opinions of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Oh, it's it's pretty wretched. I mean, I was I was pretty open to it up front, but uh, the the people are just pretty incoherent. So, I mean, they're talking about uh, corporations. Oh, corporations doing all this terrible stuff. But as far as organizations that have power over us, I mean, there's the government, the Federal Reserve, and public sector unions. I mean, who has more power over a human being, uh, Starbucks or the public teachers union, uh, who, who basically indoctrinate kids for more than a decade of their lives involuntarily or force their parents to pay even if they homeschool, uh, or, or the government, or the Federal Reserve, which controls the very lifeblood of the economy, the currency and interest rates, and manipulates them for endless political benefit to, to hand over the cash of the unborn to their political cronies and to basically shaft the middle and lower classes at the expense uh, and, and, and feed the upper classes. And nobody's talking, I've not heard one Occupy person talk about public sector unions uh, and, and the degree of monopoly control and, and power that they have over the state. Oh, the corporations are giving money to the government. Well, they're doing that in a defensive measure. But the public sector unions have a monopoly granted to them by the government, have millions of dollars of taxpayers' money to throw at anyone who threatens their interests and indoctrinate the children and control just about everything we do. Nobody's talking about that because they're not starting from first principles. They're just going on the standard anti-capitalist prejudice, and I think it's just a wretched waste of potential re- uh, reforming energy. And then the host asked me if the Occupy Wall Street movement was similar to the Tea Party movement. Well, in a way, yes, but I mean, uh, the Tea Party basically got borged into the Republican Party, right? I mean, they, they started, I think, as a very powerful organization, uh, an ideological organization, and then the, the Coke fire hose of money sprayed at them and swept them away into the bowels of the... Uh, Republican organization, and now all of the Tea Partiers who got vote in are just sticking their snouts in the same uh, uh, earmark trough as everyone else. They got a billion dollars worth of earmarks shoveling at their constituents. So they basically just got co-opted by the system and bribed with money, prestige, power, and exposure. And, uh, you know, that's what the system does. It's what the devil does is he tempts you with goodies and steals your soul. And I, I think that's probably what happened to the Tea Party, not as an ideology, which I think is great, but as an organization. And then the host asked me what I thought the anarchist solution was to all of the problems that face us. <laughs> the anarchist solution, look, I, I obviously can't speak for anarchism, and I, but I'll tell you what, my, my proposed solution is, is, is pretty simple. Sit down with people in your life and say, you realize that if you support the government, you are supporting the use of violence against me for the simple act of disagreeing with you. Do you think that it's right to support the initiation of force, kidnapping and imprisonment against people who just disagree with you? Because look, if people think that that some organization, they can call it the government, they can call it the Mad Hatter's Tea Party if they want, some organization is really great at educating the poor, at at, at, uh, healing the sick, at uh, giving succor to the old, fantastic, go send them your money. I disagree. I disagree with the welfare state. I think it is vile and destructive and traps people in an underclass of grinding and endless poverty while miseducating their children. I think that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme that is an insult to Ponzi schemes because at least Ponzi schemes are voluntary. I think that Medicare and Medicaid are wretched. Cancer survival rates for people not on Medicare are better for people those on Medicare. So I have great stats as to why this stuff is all wretched and destructive even if we discount the immorality of it just looking at the statistics, it's awful. Am I allowed to disagree with the people in my life without them saying I should be arrested and thrown in jail just for disagreeing with them. Do you support the use of violence against me? 
and take all, you know, you can take time for people to massage the argument through their brain, but eventually, look, you have to make that choice. You either give up the ideology of nonviolence or you give up the people who support violence against you. Uh, you have to draw that line. And with the power of ostracism comes the power of real change. If you're against racism, at some point, you have to give up your friendships with people who are really, really rah-rah for the KKK. And so if people support the state, they support violence, they support incarceration, they support indebtedness, they support counterfeiting, they support wars, they support taxes, they're supporting violence against you. You can make that choice as an individual as to what kind of circle you want to keep in your life. I've made my choice and I'm a lot happier for it. I think that has real power in a way that voting and education doesn't. And the easy questions kept coming. Here the host of the radio show asked me, about my opinions about abortion versus non-abortion and how a free society might influence a woman's decision to bring a baby to term or to abort it, and uh, which one, obviously, I thought was preferable. Well, I mean, I think that abortion is absolutely wretched. It's, it's a complete disaster, and uh, I think any reasonable, sensitive woman who's ever gone through one would agree with me that it's something that you really, really want to avoid. It has become epidemic, and I think that's absolutely tragic uh, and just horrible. So uh, what used to happen, of course, uh, when a woman got pregnant out of wedlock uh, is either the guy would be forced to marry her by social convention and some guy with a shotgun, or the woman would give the child up for adoption. Either way, the child gets to live. Uh, now uh, we're in a different situation where the government can take over paying for the um, uh, for the kids and therefore they might get a single mom, which is pretty bad for kids as a whole. Single mom families are really bad for children statistically. But the guy isn't forced to marry her. And also the barriers to adoption are so enormous that uh, very few people want to go through that process. So I, I, I'm personally not comfortable with pointing a gun at a woman who wants to have an abortion because, I mean, you shoot her, the baby's going to die anyway. I think that what we want to do is is get rid of the the restrictions on on um, uh, having a, a kids adopted so that there'll be some maybe you can pay the the mom for for the kid so that there's some incentive for her to, for that kid to live. I, I'd be happy to to do that. I think that would be a great thing. So I think that we need to get rid of the the sort of welfare state which allows women to make a profit off their babies by having more and more of them, uh, which also leads to early teen pregnancies and more abortions. I think we need to remove the restrictions on adoption so that uh, so that we can encourage as many children to live as possible. Uh, but I don't think that I would be comfortable. I certainly am not a law-based guy. Law is just an opinion with a gun. I'm not comfortable with making it illegal, but I think we want to create that environment where as many positive outcomes from pregnancy can occur, whether it's keeping the kid or not. I want that kid to live. The host expressed his appreciation of this viewpoint and wanted to add that he sometimes felt in the minority about his anti-abortion stance among anarchists or libertarians who tend to be a little bit less that way, and uh, I agreed with him. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, why, why can't you give a woman $30,000 for... Um, I mean, you can give a woman $30,000 for her egg. Why can't you give her $30,000 for a full-term baby? I mean, why not? I mean, are people so so against that? They consider that so heinous that they consider the, the, the death of the fetus better than that? I mean, this is crazy. I mean, what's money? Let's focus on human life. Let's if, if, if you need to give money to people so that they don't kill their fetuses, let's give money to people so they don't want that. Wouldn't that be a good solution? I mean, at least someone's still alive. And that was it. Thank you so much to the radio host for having me on. It was a real pleasure and an enjoyable conversation. 
And if you'd like to know more about The Jake Shannon Show, please go to www.k-talk.com.